my name is Chris. I serve as one of the pastors here. If you are new to First City, uh, welcome. Uh, we are a church that wants to just kind of put all of our stuff out there in the sense that, hey, if you have any questions, if you want to know who we are, what we're about, feel free to ask. Uh, we, want to, we want you to know our hearts. We want you to know uh, that we are a church that is about Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and perhaps you would say, you know, I don't claim to follow Christ, but I'm curious. I'm, I'm wondering what it means uh, to be a part of a church or to be a Christian, and I have questions. Uh, well, we'd love to talk with you. Um, if so, if, if you would be as so bold as to trust a pastor uh, to take you out to lunch or a cup of coffee, I'd love to, to meet with you or after the service. But just know that that invitation is there. And, and what I hope you feel and have already felt and what I hope you see is that as a community, we do not believe that we are better than anyone. We do not think that we are awesome and we have it all figured out. We are a community desperately in need of Christ. And we would want nothing more than for you to know Jesus and to know the saving power of the gospel in your life. And so know that is our heart. It's not to sell you anything. It's not to make you a member of some kind of organization so we can get your money. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to follow Jesus. And so um, know that that is our heart this morning as you hear this message from God's word. And if you are a disciple here this morning, know that what Jesus has to say to you is important because Christ is defining your identity as a disciple. If you claim to follow Jesus Christ, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is for you in the sense that, hey, this is what it means. We don't get to define this ourselves. We don't get to make this up as we go along. We don't get to say, well, this is what it means to be a Christian and follow Christ, but not this. We don't get to have kind of this buffet style. We, we take what Christ has to say because what he has to say to us is life-giving and gives us freedom and sets us apart from the ways of this world which, are, which end in death and destruction. And so I, I want us to carry the weight of what Christ has to say this morning because what he has to say in these verses is tough. It's tough to grasp. It's, it's tough to live. And so let me start by asking this question. How do you, how do we navigate our world so consumed with anger and hatred and retaliation? Because does it not seem that in our culture, the, the vitriol and the anger has been turned up to 11? Like it, is, it is part of our culture, not just to have a simple disagreement with somebody, but to go at somebody hard. If they offend you, if they slight you, they do something wrong against you. Hey, they don't even necessarily have to do anything against you. If they just say something offensive, well, it seems like every other day we hear about somebody losing their job because they posted something on Facebook or Twitter that somebody didn't like. Or there was a story that I heard recently about two gamers who got into it in an online game. And so one guy does this thing called swatting. Have you ever heard this? It's basically calling the police saying there's a hostage situation to get a SWAT team to go to someone's house. And a guy that was a victim of this accidentally was killed. I mean, there's no like, I'm better than you at this game, stick it. It's, I'm going to send a SWAT team to your house because I don't like you. And yeah, those ex examples are extreme, but it seems like the permission and the acceptability of that has just started to grow in our culture. And we cannot just escape that by going, oh yeah, you know, that's crazy. I would never ever SWAT somebody or I'd never try to get somebody fired because they put something on Facebook. But how often do we retaliate? 
Somebody says something to us we don't like. Somebody does something to us that hurts us. Does not everything inside of us sometimes just want to say, I'm going to get you back. I'm going to show you. And amidst this culture that has such anger and vitriol and, and, and our hearts that are prone to want to retaliate, Christ calls his disciples to be radically, radically different. He calls us to do two things. And these are going to be our two points this morning. We are not to retaliate, and we are to practice love. We are to show love even to enemies. So that's where we're going to go this morning. So let's first talk about Christ's call not to retaliate. And so in the context of this passage, Jesus is again making one of these, you have heard it said, but I say to you statements. Over the past few weeks, we have seen Jesus make a number of these statements. And in this passage this morning, the last two of these statements, Jesus gives us. And so he, he says, you have heard it said this, and so it's some incorrect teaching, but I say to you, and he's going to correct the teaching. And so in verses 38 and 39, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, this is right from the Old Testament. And so in Exodus 21, 24, this is what God tells his people related to how they are to deal with harm. If there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So here's the point of this teaching in the Old Testament law. Equitable justice. Like the punishment needs to fit the crime. And so if whatever happens to a person, however the, the crime was committed, the justice sought in that needs to be proportionate to the crime. And so this was meant to have sort of a, a justice that was equal. But it also was intended to stave off vengeance. Like if I felt like, hey, someone did something to me that hurt me and the, the punishment did not fit the crime, well, I'm going to get vengeance. I'm going to restore my honor by going and getting that person. And in Leviticus 19, God tells his people, you are not to take vengeance when someone harms you. And this law was meant to try to be a barrier and prevent people from being prone to seeking vengeance. So the question becomes, is Jesus contradicting the Old Testament? He says not to take an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. And again, context is important because no, he's not contradicting the Old Testament. He's contradicting the way that this teaching had been twisted. And so here's what had happened. So the eye for an eye policy was meant for the judicial system. It was meant for the government. It was not meant for personal use. But the religious leaders and the Pharisees at the time were starting to give allowance for personal use. Like I could invoke the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, to get vengeance on somebody and say, hey, the law allows me to do this. And then on the flip side of that, Jesus is also speaking against those who would actually use the right means for the wrong ends. Meaning, they would use the judicial system, but they would go after somebody every single time someone offended me, I'm taking you to court. I'm going to sue you every single time to try to get you back. And so they would disguise the retaliation in the cloak of justice. And so it is those two things that Jesus is going at in this text. But here's another question we need to ask based on verses 38 and 39. When Jesus says, do not resist evil, is he saying, hey, just let evil run rampant. Just let evil have its way. Don't worry about it. Just kind of sit back and let it do its thing. Well, no, 
And, and, and that, that is obvious from the fact that if Jesus were saying that, then he would have been going against his own teaching. Because did Jesus confront evil? Yes, he confronted evil. In fact, he's confronting evil in this very statement. And so Jesus is not saying just ignore evil and forget about it and let it run rampant. What he's getting at is our heart posture towards when we are injured, when we are sinned against, when somebody does something offensive to us, what is our heart posture? What is our first move? What is, what is the, our attitude towards those people? And he is saying, we do not respond to slights with more slights. We don't respond to offense with more offenses. We don't respond to those who injure us or insult us or rip us off with more injury, insults, and ripping people off. We do not retaliate. We do not resist evil in this way. We don't try to restore honor through retaliation. So this is the heart of what Jesus is getting at in these verses. And then to illustrate his point and unpack this, he gives four examples. First in verse 39, Jesus tells his disciples, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So the image Jesus is giving here is more of a slap, less, less to inflict pain and more to inflict shame. And so as most people were right-handed, to smack somebody on the right cheek, you would use the back of your hand. And that kind of slap was meant to communicate insult and shame. I'm insulting you. And so what Jesus is getting at is when you are insulted, when you are shamed, when you are dishonored. And so for his disciples, this could have come perhaps just in sort of general disagreements with somebody, or it could have been being slapped and dishonored and shamed because they followed Christ, whether by a religious teacher or perhaps their family. But whatever the case, Jesus was saying, when you are shamed, when you are injured, don't respond with retaliation. Rather, turn your other cheek as if to say, hey, you can hit this one as well, but I am not going to retaliate against you. This is hard. This is so hard. Because when somebody shames us, somebody insults us, somebody offends us, oh, we want to get back at them. Oh, we want to retaliate against them. I mean, this is, as I said, this is part of our culture. This is sort of embedded in our culture. I mean, we have songs about this. I mean, we'll, we'll stick a boot in your blank. It's the American way. Thank you, Toby Keith. I mean, all over our country, our messages, stick it to the man. Retaliation. Somebody gets you, you get them back. We're like that character from Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Cask of Amontillado. All you literature nerds out there, if you've read this, the main character, his, his motto, his family motto is, no one attacks me with impunity. And so I hope we're not walling people up in our basement like the guy in that story. But we retaliate. As I was prepping this message, just realize this, I, I, I love to retaliate. Like this is me. My heart lives here so often. And I was just running through the different ways growing up that I would retaliate. And I think I shared one story about breaking this kid's camper because he was getting on my friend and I about something. But it's like, okay, I could tell a nice little story about me when I was 10. But let me tell you about this week and the ways that I felt like I wanted to retaliate. One, 
So I got an email from a person. So I, I do some adjuncting at Bellevue University, and I was doing some report for a student. And I, the first time I sent the report in, didn't get the details right, and so I had to do it again. And I was a little frustrated because nobody really told me how to do it. And then so I send it in, and then the, the person sends it back and says, oh, everything was great except this, blah, blah, blah. And, and it was a little bit, I felt like it was a little bit of an underhanded swipe. And this is what went on in my mind, what I like imagine sending back. Well, what about the 15 grammatical and spelling errors in your emails? And I didn't do it, but like that was what was in my heart. That's what I wanted to do. Or even last night, Mindy said something to me, and we were with a group of people, and she said something that, that sort of hit me the wrong way, and, and I responded in sarcasm to try to get her back. And it's man, I just, I don't like when I feel slighted. I don't like it when I feel insulted. Here's what's going on underneath this dynamic of retaliation, why we feel this need. Because when we experience shame or dishonor or insults or injury, it, it, it comes down to an issue of identity and power. Because if, if I insult you, if I try to shame you, if I, if I try to dishonor you, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to grab control and power over you, whether I know it or not, by marking your identity, by, by marring your identity. If I can say, this is who you are and bringing you down, it gives me a level of control over you and I feel better about myself. And so there's this power, control, identity dynamic going on. And then when you experience that from me, and you're like, oh, no, you just didn't. I'm not going to let you control my identity and take and, and, and have power over me. So I'm going to come after you. And so what you end up doing is making the same move. I'm going to mark your identity. I'm going to take power and control over you. I'm going to restore my honor, my dignity, my identity by bringing you lower. Here's what ends up happening. We start to define ourselves by the mud we're throwing at each other. Rather than finding our identity in something more beautiful, something more powerful, something more profound, I'm going to sling mud at you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to bring you lower. And so we might be all in this big pile of mess and dirt and slinging mud at each other, but man, I'm not as messy as you. And so our identity is found in this brutal sort of back and forth whereby I'm defined by being less dirty than you. Oh, there's no life in that. There's no power in that. What does it reduce our identity to when it's just a matter of I'm not as ugly as you? So let me ask you, how do you retaliate? When your spouse says something to you that hurts, when a coworker or a boss does something to get you, when that neighbor tries to offend you some way again or get at you in some way, kids in the room, when your sibling gets at you, how do you retaliate? Do you respond with, Verbal back and forth. I hope you don't respond with physical retaliation, but perhaps that is your move. How are you trying to restore your identity? How are you trying to grab control? How are you trying to grab power back? 
Maybe you're like me and you run to sarcasm. Someone says something offensive and boom, you respond with sarcasm. Or, or maybe you're not more kind of the direct outward retaliation. Maybe you get cold, so you, you withdraw. You manipulate emotionally. Well, you said that thing that hurt to me, so I'm not going to talk to you. I'm, I'm going to withhold love and affection from you. I'm going to withhold good from you. Oh, my boss offended me, so I'm going to slack on my job. There are, there are subtle ways, there are cold ways that we can retaliate against somebody. It isn't all just outward and, and direct. But we have our ways. Maybe you just harbor hatred in somebody, with somebody in, in your mind and your heart, and you scream at them in your head. You daydream about just letting it all go in front of them. That's a form of retaliation. Whatever you need to do to try to restore your identity and grab power back. Ah, but when you turn the other cheek, when you don't retaliate, here's what you're saying. Look, the insult, the offense, the sin, the dishonor, the shame isn't going to stick. It isn't going to hold power over me. It isn't going to hold control over me. You, you can try to mar my identity, but I'm not going to give you that control and that power over me. And so when you turn the other cheek, you're saying your identity, your honor are not determined by other people. They're not determined by that insult. They're not inter- determined by that injury. You are saying, I'm not losing power here. I'm not losing control here. Go ahead and try again but I'm not going to be caught up in the ugliness. I'm not going to be caught up in the mudslinging. I'm not going to define my identity nor your identity by who's less dirty, who's less ugly. This is exactly what Jesus modeled for us. So you may remember when we studied 1 Peter last year, what the apostle Peter wrote about Jesus when he endured insult and shaming. This is what he writes in Chapter 2, verses 21 and 24. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. When reviled and insulted and shamed and beaten, Christ did not retaliate. He did not revile back. He did not make threats. Rather, and this is the important piece, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He entrusted himself to God. This is, here's another way of saying this. Christ put his identity in the hands of his father. He knew who he was in relation to his father, and so it did not matter what these religious leaders and chief priests and all these important people said about him and did to him. He entrusted his identity to his father. And what was the result of this? In church, we have to grasp this. What was the result of this? Because so often we fear that if the insult and shame is not met with retaliation, that it gets the last word. Like that is what is going to be the thing that defines us. But what is the result of what Christ did when he endured? Our salvation. 
the results of Christ enduring ridicule and shame and dishonor was being put up on a cross so you and I could be forgiven of our sins and set free from our sins so that by his stripes we can be healed from our sin and our sickness. Like the the end of Christ enduring is salvation. And here's the other beautiful piece. What Jesus displayed is that dishonor and that shame and those insults don't get the last word. They do not win. In fact, he put them on display, as Colossians tells us, to show that they have been disarmed and that they're powerless, they're toothless. This is what Christ models for us. This is what Christ shows us. This is what Christ sets us free to do. And so if you are in Jesus Christ, you don't retaliate because you don't have to retaliate. You don't have to grab control and power through these means. Your identity, your honor is rooted in something more beautiful and more powerful. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're a son and daughter of God. That is your identity. And no amount of insult, no matter how much truth is in it, no amount of offense, no amount of injury, no amount of shame and dishonor that comes from you from other people will change that identity. It is guarded and hidden with Jesus Christ in heaven. And so when we recognize that that is our identity, we're set free to not retaliate. We can turn the other cheek. We can say, go ahead and hit me again because this does not determine my identity. And so what does this look like? How, how, how does turning the other cheek actually practically play out? I mean, this, this is something that is a little bit nebulous in some ways. It's not clear. Well, let me, let me just kind of give you a couple little guidelines to think through here because I can't necessarily speak into every specific situation. For one, it means when you are insulted or injured, it's not boom, right back at you. It's not retaliating with sarcasm or with injury or with insults. It's also not going cold and withdrawing from people. It's not withholding good from people. It's still being present and engaged. Now, it may involve just sort of letting it slide and not responding at all, but it also might say, hey, what you said really hurt. Hey, hey, I, I'm, I'm, that, that hurt me. Can I just let you know that that hurt me? But not in a, hey, don't you ever say that to me again, anger. But in a, hey, that was not okay for you to do that, and I would like to make that right and let you know that. And, and so whatever it may be, the point being is that our action is not born out of retaliation, but born in freedom born out of the sense that we have an identity in Christ and so we can still engage this person in a righteous way. But here's the other side of this, and this is important to get because a lot of us, this is what we'll do in order to not retaliate. We'll go, we'll go cold and we'll kind of just bury the hurt and pretend it didn't happen. That's not what this means. Hey, injury hurts. Insults hurt. Shame and dishonor hurt. We're going to feel it. We're human beings. We have emotions. If you're like, ah, that didn't hurt. I didn't really feel that. Something's wrong. And so we are going to feel the pain. But in the midst of that pain, what restores us? What brings healing? What brings hope? It's running to Christ. It's running to our identity in Christ 
We're like David, who said in Psalm 4, lamenting how men have been dishonoring him. He said, Oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. My identity. David knew who he belonged to. The Lord hears when I call him. That's our hope. When we're hurt by injury and insult, when we're hurt by people who have offended us, we don't retaliate. We turn the other cheek and we run to the Lord to find comfort. We run to the Lord to be washed in his love, cleansed by the blood of Christ, and find our security and comfort there. Turning the other cheek isn't this passive, fearful, submitting to insult. Rather, it's powerfully subversive. It's undermining the very system that wants to perpetuate itself through insult. Hear me on this. We subvert this world's system when we turn the other cheek because we say, we're not giving that any more power. We're not playing the game. We are bringing something more beautiful and powerful to bear here, the kingdom of God. And so church, don't don't think this is us retreating. This isn't us just just sort of being, okay, we're going to be weak and sit back and be victims. No, this is resting in the power of God and undermining the system of this world with something beautiful. And look, apart from Christ, you can't do it. Apart from Christ, you're going to run to something else for your identity. And when that identity is attacked, you've got to grab for it and restore it somehow. It's only through the power of Christ are we set free. And with this sort of foundational principle set, Jesus walks through three other examples to sort of unpack the ways that people may try to shame his disciples in the ways they may feel tempted to retaliate. So in verse 40, Jesus says, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So in this example, Jesus is referring to the fashion trends of the day. And so you have the tunic and the cloak. Now the tunic was, was the clothes worn closest to the body. Now, not underwear, but just the, the sort of the regular bodily clothes. Under Jewish law, you could not sue to take that from somebody. It was their bare essentials. And so what Jesus is saying here is if somebody tries to shame you, leave you naked by taking your stuff, let him have it. By the way, take my coat too. What what, what is Jesus getting at here? He's using some hyperbole. He's not saying disciples, it's okay if you run around naked because everybody's taking everything. But he is making the point here. When somebody shames you by going after your stuff, what do you treasure more? the kingdom of God or your stuff? Is your identity wrapped in your stuff so much that you have to fight for it? Or are you free because the kingdom of God is your inheritance that when somebody comes after you to try to shame you, you can turn that on its head and say, hey, actually, let me bless you with my stuff. You you need that so badly? Here, here's more. See, my, my identity isn't in my stuff. My security isn't in my stuff. Because of the kingdom of God, I can be generous. So there you go. So Jesus is trying to set his disciples free from those who may try to shame them by taking their stuff. Then in verse 41, we get this statement. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. 
Now, this example may be a bit hard for us to grasp. I'm not sure if anybody has grabbed you by the shoulder and said, you will walk a mile with me. <laughs> Never happened to me. But context, I will say that's how I feel when some of you ask me to go running with you. But <laughs> context is this. In, in Roman society, a Roman soldier could conscript somebody to carry their baggage, carry their equipment up to one mile. So this was sort of forced labor. And so what Jesus is saying, hey, if someone forces you into this kind of labor, which was degrading, which was shameful, flip it on its head, go with them two miles. Use it as an opportunity to serve someone. They want to shame and degrade you and force you to do something. You're going to say, hey, guess what? I am free to love you and serve you. Let me do that. So the next time your boss tries to shame or degrade you by giving you a bunch of extra work, let's say he gives you like a ton of reports to fill out. Hey, make sure there's no typos, no spelling errors. Make sure that thing is formatted so beautifully on that crisp, nice paper, collated in folders, stapled or whatever it needs to be and hand that thing to him and say, here you go. Because when you're set free from retaliation, you can serve, you can love, you can put the kingdom on display as we're going to see here in a second. And finally, in verse 42, Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. What does this have to do with retaliation? Well, in the context here, it's probably someone coming and asking for money that has either no intention of paying back or can't pay back. And so you, you have maybe felt the shame or, or felt sort of the, the wound or the offense of somebody who has borrowed money from you and didn't pay it back. And so you kind of felt like you were taken for a ride or, or maybe someone took advantage of you. And again, Jesus is saying, hey, you can be generous with your stuff. Now, he's not saying just be careless with your stuff, but you can be generous with your stuff and give to people in need when they ask because you don't have to worry about this shaming you. You don't have to worry about this offending you. You don't have to worry about losing status because you gave. And so disciples of Jesus do not retaliate because the kingdom of God has spoken a greater identity over them and given them a greater inheritance where they are now free to love people. And this is the second point that Jesus makes. It's not just reactively we do not retaliate, we proactively show love. In verse 43 and 44, we get our final, you have heard it said, correction. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. You shall love your neighbor is certainly taught in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 19, 18, God tells his people, you shall not take vengeance, there it is again, or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Nowhere does the Old Testament teach hate your enemy. So where did that come from? Well, here's, here's what happened. The religious leaders and Pharisees took love your neighbor to such an extent that it became love your own tribe. Love only those people who are like you. You're the people that are only the same ethnicity as you or think like you or have the same values. Only those people who are like you, your own tribe, love them all you want, 
And because you love them so much, it gives you freedom for anybody outside that tribe. Well, I don't care about you. I can hate you. I can rant and I can rail about against you because you're not my fam. And so it got twisted into this tribalism that it was never intended to be. And Jesus says to show love even to your enemies. Your love isn't to be tribal because as Jesus points out, there's nothing remarkable about that. Nothing remarkable about showing love only to people who are like you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Who cares if you only love those in your tribe? Tax collectors and Gentiles do this. this was, these were two categories of sinners. Meaning, even these sinners who have very low standards of morality do that. So when you say it's okay to love just those in your tribe, you set the bar really low on what it means to love people. Who cares if you only love people in your tribe? The mafia does that. Hitler and Osama bin Laden did that. The New England Patriots do that. (laughs) There's nothing remarkable about that kind of love. And disciples of Jesus show a different kind of love. They show and they practice love even to their enemies because they're children of a different kingdom. Their king, their God, their father shows love even to his enemies. In verse 45, Jesus says, for he, meaning God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God doesn't just bless the just and the good. He blessed the unjust and the sinner and the wicked as well. His grace and his love and his mercy extend to all, regardless. He shows love to wicked people by providing food and rain and sun and provisions to them. The fact that they're still breathing means that God is showing a kind of love to them still. God is generous with his love, even to his enemies, even to those who oppose him. God is generous in the things that he gives. He doesn't withhold good just because somebody isn't of his tribe. Now, this is important to point out. Jesus is not saying that the covenantal saving love of those who belong to him, those who will, who will be saved from judgment, is the exact same kind of love for those who won't. There is a special redemptive covenantal love for those who belong to Christ. But that doesn't mean that God still doesn't show love. He's still showing a kind of love to people who don't know him in hopes that they would become those who experience his covenantal saving redemptive love. It is the goodness of God that leads to repentance as scripture tells us. And so God is generous with his love. And we cannot forget that church. Sometimes we think, I gotta love my people, which is great. You are to show specific and a special kind of love to your family. That is good, and scripture speaks of that. We are supposed to love those that belong to the church and the household of God in a distinct way. Scripture speaks to that. But that doesn't leave us off the hook 
from showing radical, generous love to those who may oppose God, may oppose us, who may insult us and injure us, think differently than us, look different than us. This is who our God is. And showing love is proactive. It's proactive in the sense that it's not just we respond when someone does something to us, but we take initiative. We look for ways to show love. And Jesus identifies an important one here. Pray. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who offend you. Pray for those who injure you. Pray for those who shame and dishonor you. Have you ever spent a consistent amount of time praying for someone over an extended period of time? What happens to your heart towards that person? If if you pray for someone over a long period of time, do you cultivate more anger towards them? Now, Now, you might deal with some anger, but what begins to happen as you continue to pray for their good, pray for their blessing, pray for their salvation? Your heart begins to soften and it begins to grow in love for that person. And so Jesus knows that his disciples aren't just going to flip a switch and start loving people. So he says, pray for them. Pray for them that they may be blessed. Pray for them that they may experience the grace of God, but pray for them so that your heart changes. We pray for others so that our hearts are shaped and molded after our God so that we would go and show love and compassion to people. We are cultivating by faith hearts of love which should lead us to doing good for them, any, t- any chance we have. And this is exactly what Jesus did. As the nails were being put through his hands, he prays to his father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. As the nails are being driven in his hands, as he is being shamed and mocked and beaten, he prays for his enemies they might find salvation. So the end of loving enemies, the end of not retaliating is not that evil wins. It's not that evil gets the last word. It's not that we become victims. It's salvation. It's victory over sin. It's victory over evil. And so our hope, church, our hope and not retaliating and showing love to others is that the end of all of this is that God will be glorified, the kingdom of God will be put on display and that others may come to know Christ and follow him. That is why we do not retaliate. That is why we show love in church. May that define us in this city. May that define First City Church.